Welcome to the Running Explained podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth. I'm a marathoner, coach, and answer seeker. When I first started running at the age of 29, I had so many questions and what felt like nowhere to turn to for answers. And now I'm here to answer all your running questions about anything that you might want to know. If you're a new runner or you've been doing this for a long time, there's always something more to learn about running. So let's get started. Continuing with what I think is at this point a mini series on triathlon, my guest this week is sports dietitian and endurance athlete Natalie Robertello. Natalie was a guest on season two talking about mindset when it comes to sport nutrition and sport fueling, but this week she is back to teach us all about the basics of how to fuel for your triathlon. Whether you are curious about triathlon, dabbling in sprints or Olympics, or you're an experienced half or full Ironman finisher, there was always more to learn about and dial into your nutritional strategy when when it comes to performing at your best in these multi-sport events. And even if you have no interest in triathlon, there is still something you can learn because of what we know about how to fuel for endurance sport in general, whether it's a single or multi-sport event, the principles of fueling don't change that much. It's just kind of the specific execution. So I know you're going to learn something. I absolutely did. And without further ado, here is Natalie. Natalie, welcome back to the show. I'm so excited to have you here. Oh, I'm so excited to be back. Thank you for having me. So for listeners who are unfamiliar with you and your work and have not yet listened to your appearance uh, in season two, go ahead and reintroduce yourself and tell us who you are. Absolutely. So my name is Natalie Robertello. I am a sports dietitian and endurance athlete myself. I help athletes, endurance athletes, runners, triathletes fuel for life and performance and feel good about food. I love it. And today we are talking about triathlon nutrition, nutrition for the triathlete. And listener, you might be wondering, well, you probably already know what this is about because you know what the episode was titled before you even clicked on it. But you're wondering, like, why is she talking about triathlon stuff? I thought this was a running podcast. Well, running, of course, is one of the three events that makes it the triathlon. But I also am of the firm believer that it's always good to know a little bit more about some things that are adjacent to what you do that help provide a richer understanding. Um, Because the principles of endurance nutrition, Natalie, as we're gonna talk about today, are pretty much across the board. If you are performing in an endurance uh, athletic capacity, whether it's running, biking, swimming, hiking, ultra marathoning, like the, the principles of endurance nutrition are the same, but it's more like the, how does it actually show up in your event that changes. So somebody might be listening to this and say, I've noticed in triathlon, I never want to do any triathlon ever, ever, ever. But something that Natalie said to me today about endurance performance nutrition, that stuck with me. Yeah, yeah. And I think that it's so funny when you when you say that, you know, we're not here to talk, we're talking about triathlon specific nutrition, but running being one of those things. And I think that what I've at least encountered is a lot of runners maybe wanting to dip their toes into triathlon, at least from the clients that I've worked with. Yeah. And that's kind of what, I mean, we recently did a podcast episode about kind of intro intro to triathlon as a runner. Like if you are primarily runner and you're triathlon curious how you might get started there. And I do feel like this, this conversation is kind of that natural extension because we covered basically everything except nutrition got to the very end and said, oh yeah, by the way, nutrition's an entirely separate podcast episode probably could be multiple episodes really to do it justice. But let's go ahead and get started. Natalie, if 
let's say I am an endurance runner who doesn't really know much about like what it means to fuel my runs or my races. And maybe I'm, you know, in the half marathon distance, or I'm thinking about doing like an Olympic or even a sprint triathlon. What do I need to know about the kind of foundations of the role that fuel plays in sport performance? This is one of my favorite topics to talk about because foundations, quite literally like setting the foundation for everything that you do. And my favorite subject, because when I'm working with athletes, it's it's usually the number one thing we have to focus on because we're not doing it. Therefore, it's not supporting their performance in the way that they want it to. So when we're talking about foundations, we're talking about adequately fueling your body for everything that you do on a day-to-day basis, plus the extra that you're doing for exercise. So we need to support our metabolism on a regular basis. We need to eat enough energy, AKA calories. Plus we need to add that extra to support your everyday training. And I know we've talked about this before on the podcast. And one of the reasons I talk about this subject so often is because it is that important to you as the runner, as the athlete, but also that this is, I feel like such an area where no matter how much I talk about it, I know that this is literally your career, no matter how much you talk about it. It seems like there are still so many athletes out there who are just not being exposed to this type of of basic information that they should be getting along with all the other kind of stuff they're learning about their training. Is that what you're seeing too? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I I wouldn't, it wouldn't be my favorite subject if I didn't like encounter this every single time with a lot of my athletes, because there is a lot of misinformation out there. Even though we have plenty of great dietitians out there talking about this stuff, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And a lot of what I do has worked for me, therefore you should do this. So what we hear from coaches, what we hear from friends, teammates, family members tends to influence the way that we might approach things. And then of course, any past nutrition history and experiences. What is the number one mistake that you encounter when a new athlete comes to you and says, Natalie, I'm doing my first try or my second try or my 18th triathlon, or my first marathon, my 18th marathon, whatever it is. What is the most common mistake with their fueling that you commonly see? I commonly see, again, it's, there are two things I see. So one thing I often encounter is we're not eating enough on the day-to-day basis, meaning everything outside of training, but we're hitting our carb goals for training. And then on the flip side, I will see maybe we're eating enough to support outside of running, but once we get into that training, we're under fueling with that hourly training and kind of coupled with usually there being a situation where we're not eating enough carbohydrate for whatever reason. Interesting. So somebody might say, well, no, 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 I totally understand sport nutrition. I'm getting 70 grams of carbohydrate per hour when I run or on the bike, but then you look at what they're eating the rest of the day and they're choosing very like high volume, you know, low carbohydrate options. Maybe they're not eating enough meals throughout the day. So, but but they're coming to you and them saying, no, 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 I understand sport nutrition. I'm eating enough, but it's like, I feel like I actually, I've seen that with a cut and I don't do a lot. I don't do much nutrition, obviously I'm not a dietitian, but I have seen this too. Um, and that's interesting too. Cause like, it's that weird, like that cognitive dissonance, like they've embraced carbohydrates for performance, 
but somehow only when I'm actively sweating. And then once I am returned to my home, I'm like trying to, you know, subsist on as little as possible. Yeah, that that's exactly what what I'm noticing is, you know, I will do what I need to do for training, but I'm not necessarily doing what my body needs for everything outside of training. And that is very much backwards because again, if we're thinking about foundation, you know, you're built, let's say you're building a house, right? We have to lay that foundation and we have to lay the bricks for it to, you know, hold up, right? So that's the same approach when it comes to, you know, racing, running, a run, you know, like a road race or when it comes to triathlon, if you don't have that base, it's only going to get you so far. A lot of the issues that I hear athletes describe when it comes to, let's say, barriers to enough or proper fueling is this mm -hmm. undercurrent of fear of too much. That if I eat too much of XYZ, something bad's going to happen, or I can embrace that this type of food is appropriate when I'm running but I can't, like, I'm not okay with it. Like I would never, I might eat graham crackers before my run, but like I would never eat a graham cracker on a rest day. You know, it's this, it's this kind of, this fear of what might happen if we eat too much. I know, and it's great that you bring that point up because I think that that really goes along with what we were just talking about. You know, I can do things necessary to sustain myself when it comes specifically to support, but I get fearful in eating outside of that. And, you know, I think that at least in my practice, what I've noticed is a lot of times it comes down to what happens, is my body going to change if I eat this way outside of sport? And when it comes down to, I guess we'll put like a little bit of um, a pin in that, but when it comes down to how your body is going to use carbohydrates, whether you're exercising or not exercising, your body is always going to use those carbohydrates. It doesn't just use it for exercise. It uses it for energy throughout your day. You're, you know, you're thinking, you're breathing, you're trying to focus, like your brain and your muscles are going to use glucose pretty consistently. It's just going to use up glucose a lot more or sugar or carbs a lot more quickly when you are in an endurance exercise situation. So it's always going to use them. It's just the rate of use is higher when you're exercising. Obviously, we're going to spend a lot of our time in this conversation talking about fueling, intra-event fueling, right? So fueling in your training sessions, fueling in your race. But I want to start and talk about, like you said, the, the foundation, like the rest of the stuff, not the stuff that you're doing, not the stuff that you're eating on the run or on the bike, but the stuff that you're eating the rest of the day. Because most endurance training, endurance running, and certainly triathlon is an incredibly high volume sport. Um, think we're thinking about hours and hours per week, just training notwithstanding, you know, the, the strength training and the warm up and the cool down, you know, but for, a you know, thinking about the conversation I had on uh, triathlon with uh, coach Danielle Hurt, you know, if you're training for a half Ironman, you could realistically be spending between eight and 12 hours per week training as like a regular participant. Right. And so that's a ton of time spent exercising. How do you counsel broadly speaking, how do you counsel athletes in advising them on how, how their needs change as their overall training volume rises just in their daily nutritional needs? 
Yeah, it, I really like to simplify it, to be completely honest, because a lot of times we tend to think that something has to be really, really difficult for it to work effectively. So I like to work on simplifying it with a lot of my clients so that they understand the basics, the foundation of what they need from a day-to-day -day basis, and then we build on top of that. So my favorite way to do that is to use performance plates, and I'm sure that your listeners are no strangers to this because I believe that there has been an episode or two or more talking about it. But I really like to utilize performance plates. And just like a quick snippet of what that is, is this is what your plate looks like on an everyday basis without exercise involved. And this is how your plate changes across the training cycle or changes maybe day to day with nutrition. Now it's meant to be a guide. I think that's first and foremost what we should say. It's not a diet prescription. It's not a you must eat this way. When we're working on, when I'm working on nutrition recommendations, it's science, of course, but it's also a little bit of you and what you have going on and the goals that you're working on. So basically, those performance plates are carbohydrates increasing throughout your training cycle. So if you're going from a day where maybe it's a rest day or maybe it's a day where, you know, you walk the dogs, maybe 30 minutes of exercise, you're still going to have about a quarter of your plate with carbohydrates. But on days where you have maybe an hour or more, and then we kind of progress to two hours or more a day of training, carbohydrates are going to increase based on that time of training. Why is that? Because we need more carbs when we train more. How often do you see athletes? I mean, and here's the thing, like I get we're all, endurance athletes particularly tend to be creatures of habit, right? <laughs> Like we find our things that work for us and we stick with it. I've been eating the same thing for breakfast for like two and a half years, right? Yeah. <laughs> like it's just like, it works for me, you know? Um, how often do you see athletes completely unintentionally under fuel throughout their training cycle because they're they're like, yeah, but this is what I always eat. And you're like, well, that's mm -hmm. what you always eat and it works great for you maybe in your off season, but now you're doing 10 hours a week on, of training. Mm -hmm. I see that wildly. I see it all the time. I really do. Um, and that's why I like to utilize performance plates, but also, you know, give a look at their food journal to teach them and educate them on, you know, what that plate should look like, especially if we go back to your point of I'm eating high volume foods. What that kind of speaks to is I often see people saying, well, I ate a lot of fruits and veggies. Don't those count as carbs? Or I'm having a lot of like beans throughout the week. Don't those count as carbs? And yes, they have carbohydrates in them, but the, the, the density, the amount of carbohydrates that we need per day is usually higher than most people think. So we really need those grains and starches to be a part of it. And I often see that that is what is missing, whether it's from not knowing or being fearful, like you say. So I do see it a lot. Outside of the, like I said, the intra, uh, intra session fueling. Yeah. What are some basic signs or symptoms that an athlete just might not be getting enough fuel in general to support their training? Mm, yeah. So things that I will see will be feeling lethargic or fatigued. I think that lack of desire, and I say this carefully because a lot of these symptoms I know can be symptoms of other things or signs of other things, but that lack and desire and motivation to, you know, maintain, keep up with their training because they're not feeling energized is often what I see. I'm um, having difficulties getting through their workouts, not sleeping well at night. This is a big one that's overlooked. People not sleeping well, waking up a lot during night, the nighttime, I'm not feeling rested. 
that's those are big signs that we're not getting enough food. Feeling very fatigued and sore for days on end, needing to crash and nap consistently on your weekends after long runs. Another big one we normalize of like, oh, I should feel exhausted. No, you really, you really shouldn't. No shade on naps. I, I love a good nap, but we shouldn't feel completely wiped after our training sessions. And then of course, beyond that, you know, deeper things, gastrointestinal issues, bloating, cramping, um, uh, vomiting, diarrhea, constipation, like things like this, uh, loss of your menstrual cycle, uh, reoccurrent stress fractures. These would be um, some bigger signs and symptoms. And I, I think that there is this huge normalization in the endurance community to be like, oh yeah, it's normal to be like sore and hungry all the time. I'm training for a marathon or like, of course I'm napping all the time. I'm training for an Ironman. And like, like, yes, yeah, obviously like you are going to be carrying a higher level of fatigue if you just did a five hour bike ride, right? Compared to somebody who like maybe just walked in the park for 45 minutes. But like you said, there, there's a spectrum of like, yeah, I mean, you're going to feel fatigued, but you shouldn't be it shouldn't destroy you. Like nothing in your training should destroy you or like nothing in your training should be so challenging that it's, it's just simply not doable. Exactly. Absolutely. I think there's a big normalization of that. And yes, there's going to be some soreness and some fatigue. Like let's not forget you're training for a big event, but like you said, there's, there's a spectrum in, in what to expect. And a lot of times when I'm working with athletes and we work on these nutrition things. They're like, oh, wow, I didn't realize I was not supposed to feel this way. Or I didn't realize it was actually possible to not feel this way. So that's always a a happy moment for everybody. (laughs) I have terrible eyesight. If I'm not wearing a pair of contacts or prescription glasses or sunglasses, I can't see at all. And it's very challenging to go through life needing to wear glasses at all times, or at least a pair of contacts. And hey, look, contacts aren't for everybody. So what if you're a person who needs prescription lenses, but you also like to run? Yeah, the pain of paying for crazy expensive prescription athletic sunglasses hits you right in the wallet and then twists the knife. But guess what? Gooder is now offering prescription lenses in all of their frames. You heard me right. No slip, no bounce, running sunglasses that also come with a prescription lens just for you. Sign me up. Right now, prescription gooders are available in the Circle G and the Classic style, but new styles are being added all the time. And with frames starting at only $25, your wallet and your eyes will thank you. And speaking of wallets, you can get free shipping on your next regular order at gooder.com using code RUNEXP. For those of you who don't need prescription sunglasses, head on over to gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com, and get free shipping on your next order with code RUNEXP. That's R-U-N-E-X-P on gooder.com. Look good, run gooder. I know we're, we're not going to probably touch on this too much, um, but I just uh, saw a great post from Megan Featherston, who's a, also a sports dietitian, talking about carb loading. And she, the the gist of her post was athletes who are, you know, saying like, okay, I'm preparing for my first carb load. They look at their kind of target numbers for their carb, their carb load pre-event. And it's like, oh my God, I, I could never possibly eat that much carbohydrate. And her response, one of the responses was that if your carbohydrate loading recommendations are like a terrifying number, 
that probably means you're not eating enough carbs in training. Do you have an experience with that as a dietitian? I agree with that. And first, I when I'm working with athletes, I kind of try to get a gauge on, of course, their mindset around food, their relationship with food. And carbs comes up a lot. It really does. So when we start to look at that, and this is why I like to approach it from performance plates, because there's not so much of a focus on the number for those people who maybe don't feel comfortable around numbers. But for those that do feel okay around numbers, we do look at those numbers sometimes. And usually there is a bit of a shell shock. So getting familiar with sometimes those numbers is really beneficial initially. And so it's not a wow factor or how am I going to do this or intimidating or causing a lot of like GI issues and things like that once we do carb load. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the other thing too, is like, if you've been under eating this whole time and now you're trying to hit 700 grams of carbohydrate in your carb load, and you've been maybe getting half of that in regular training, your digestive system is going to be a little unhappy with you. Yeah. You're, you're not going to, you are not going to feel good. We I actually just, um, uh, we have a, a blog post on, on carb loading 101. So you guys can definitely check that out with like a sample plan and kind of give some guidance around um, some numbers too. But yeah, it's always a really surprising thing for people. I usually get a lot of laughing when I bring out those numbers. <laughs> that nervous laugh like, yes, ah. yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're like, yeah, I know. I know. It looks like a lot. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think having that sample is such a helpful tool for people. So I will definitely link that in the show notes. People can take a look and see, hey, what, what might a carb load look like? But going back to the performance-oriented side of fueling. So obviously there are some fundamental differences between how you would craft your fueling plan for a triathlon versus a single sport discipline, mm-hmm. right? Um, but the general principles remain the same. Uh, talk to us about that. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. The general principles stay the same. We have to consider what distance of triathlon you're doing. So if you are doing, I say a longer distance triathlon, we have to remember there are different, you know, there are different um, lengths of triathlon. So even if you are doing a quote unquote shorter distance, something like a sprint or um, Olympic distance, you may still be out there just depending anywhere from one to, to three or four hours, just depending on how long it takes you. So we have to remember that carb goals per hour are based on time that you are out there, not depending on whether you think something is short or long. We have to remember that it just depends on the length of that race. So we think about it that way. And then also the fact that if you are in a longer course triathlon, we have to think that there are there is going to be more stress on your body throughout this distance, even similar to things like a marathon. We just have multi-sport pieces to it. So we have to think, okay, I know that I'm going to be out there longer and running out of glycogen and running out of or becoming dehydrated can have some more serious consequences and be detrimental, um, leading to a DNF or just really not feeling good out there. That's such a key thing too, because I I think, again, talking about kind of the weird normalizations that the endurance community can do, you're like, oh, it's just a sprint. Like, oh, it's just an Olympic, but if it's, but you're out there for three, three and a half hours. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think, oh, it's just a half marathon, kind of the similar things. Yeah. Well, you might be out there for two, two and a half, maybe three hours and kind of, yeah, you're what you might think of as short distance. Like your body doesn't care what you think. (laughs) Yep. 
Yep. I don't know about you guys, but you know, there'll be times in my training where I'm going out for a long run and my long run, just depending on where I'm on that training is eight miles. And then depending on where else I'm in my training, it might be 14 miles and then eight doesn't seem so long. So it just changes too. One of the questions I get about fueling is do, do the fueling recommendations for training or racing change depending on how fast or slow that you're going or how hard that you're working. Like if I'm, if I'm working like kind of, you know, 90% of my max versus kind of cruising right around 65% of my max, for example, do the fueling recommendations change? So based on intensity, no, uh, we take it based on time. So if you are, you know, planning to finish and let's say, you know, you're going to be out there less than two hours. And when we talk about fueling recommendations, my mind is going right to carbs. So this is what I'm talking about, but we'd still take it as about 30 to 60 grams of carbs per hour. And then beyond that on two hours, we'd be talking about 60 to 90 or more grams of carbs per hour. So intensity doesn't matter so much though. The types of fuel you may choose might change just based on how you feel and digestive capacity. I think for most people thinking, wait, what do you mean? 60 grams per hour for less than two hours? That seems like so much. Isn't that too much? <laughs> not at all. Not in my world. Not in a lot of our, our worlds. No, absolutely not. And I know it It might feel uncomfortable if you haven't done it before, but I can assure you once you start doing it, you're going to be like, why wasn't I doing this a long time ago? <laughs> do you ever explain to people kind of how it's, and we can talk about, you know, the really the high, the high level carbohydrate intake recommendations talking about like that 90 to hundred grams per mm-hmm. hour, 190 to 120 grams per hour later in a conversation. Um, but do you ever explain to people that like, I promise you that if you're eating 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour, like if you're concerned about a surplus of calories, you are burning and we're not here to talk about burning calories, but like you're not even replacing half of what you're burning by that. Yep. That's a large, when we talk about, again, like how we feel about food, how we feel about nutrition, some of the hesitation with increasing those carbs is often that fear of, oh my gosh, I'm eating all this sugar. How is this going to affect me? But yeah, we go right down to the science and how your body works and how your body functions. It is quite literally using up that glucose immediately to help fuel your exercise. And the reason that we're bringing in those carbs beyond that nine, that 60 minutes or 90 minutes initially is because your body is going to tap out of those glycogen stores. That's your stored carbs. So we can't get it from anywhere else. Your body doesn't have that capacity unless you're bringing it in. So I do know, I kind of conceptualize carbohydrate, you know, intra fuel carbohydrate recommendations, but in that 30 to 60, 60 to 90, 90 to 120 based on the duration of exercise. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing less and less of the 30. I mean, th- we, it feels like a lot of a lot of times when we're talking about, you know, 30 to 60, like most of the dietitians that I know are now really recommending that if you are in a in a, an event of basically any distance or longer, 75 minutes, definitely 90 minutes or longer, like skip right over 30 and head straight to 60. I like that approach as well. And I often will do that with clients, but I, again, like to kind of see where they're at. If they are not taking nutrition with them at all, because there's a fear we're just bringing water or, you know, whatever it is we're under fueling, I like to take the step of let's start with 30 and start to gradually work up so that it is 
challengingly, challengingly comfortable for you, but also we get at least the bare minimum started and we can test the GI tolerance. You can gain confidence in it and then we'll go up from there. And for the 60 to 90 grams, which I know is where most of the marathon recommendations are, what is that, what distance or duration is that recommendation most appropriate for? Yeah. So if we're speaking in the triathlon world, I mean, I would have that recommendation in the Olympic distance. And I would also have that recommendation in the um, half Ironman distance or 70.3 distance. Um, you know, Ironman, full Ironman, you also can get away with that as well. But of course, you know, the more carbs, the better with that. And we'll kind of like, you know, of course, that's not necessarily true, but there's ways to get those carbohydrates in in larger amounts and not um, have a digestive disaster on the course. <laughs> so obviously triathlons start with a swim. And I know one of the, the principles of fueling when you are in a, in a running race, fuel early, fuel often, like set your watch 20 minutes in, start taking your gels, right? Mm -hmm. um, you can't do that in the water though. Like you can't take nutrition in the swim. How does that work? Yeah, I know. So the way that we work around this is it all starts with the first half of your morning. So where some people for just general, like general running road races, again, just running carbohydrates generally being enough sustainable to have as a pre-race nutrition plan with long distance triathlon. I like to bring a little bit more protein into the picture for my athletes, because this will help steady their blood sugar. They won't get so hungry. We started off at least three hours before, and then we'll do drops of carbs before the race, of course, with some fluids. That way we can't necessarily cover for the swim, but we can get some nutrition preemptively in for the swim. That way after the swim, when we come into the transition area, we can start there with fueling. Sometimes people prefer to start on the bike, um, but we start right after the swim. Um, Depending, of course, on conditions for the swim, whether it's in, you know, the ocean, kind of how cold it is. Um, are there any mm -hmm. special considerations for people who are like really dialing it, right? They're like, I'm nailing the foundations. Now I'm getting hyper specific. Are there any changes or considerations you might make to the race day nutrition, depending on what conditions the athlete's going to encounter? Yeah, usually heat is like right where my mind goes with this. Um, heat is something just like in running where we have to make some adjustments. So this may mean fluid intake is going to be a little bit more than it usually is. It also means that electrolytes, namely sodium may be higher. So I always have athletes practice with higher amounts of, of salts, like bringing salt chews, salt capsules, a base salts with them so that they can practice in a situation where it is going to be warmer. They know that it sits well. Um, the other consideration is if it's a particularly, um, the swim is a little, let's say, uh, jostly. It's like a washing machine. We like to call it. You're getting thrown all over the place. You may not feel good coming out of the water into transition area and slamming nutrition. It, there's a chance it's not going to sit well, especially if you followed, uh, swallowed a few gulps of water, your heart rate's extremely high. So you may be better off waiting until you're on the bike and kind of out of that transition area to start settling into your nutrition plan. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. How much does, I mean, obviously personal preference plays a huge role into this, but the different forms that nutrition can take, right? I'm thinking liquid, solid, gel, (laughs) you know, what does, is this mostly driven by what the athlete's preferences are or are there is there a case for when you might use certain forms of fuel in certain parts of the race it's a little bit of both i like to take in personal preference and then you know consider what leg of the race may be better to bring in certain types of nutrition so to break that down a little bit when we're talking about you being on the bike your stomach your gi system is being jostled around a whole lot less So this really provides an opportunity for you to take in a lot more nutrition without the potential GI side effects. So what do I mean by that? Usually solid foods can be more easily tolerated at that point. So if you do like the idea of bringing some solids in, we might be able to take in a lot more carbohydrates and potentially electrolytes when you are on and fluids as well when you're on the bike as opposed to the run. So sometimes, you know, front loading that a little bit on the bike can be very beneficial Uh, The great thing about um, the bike is you can set it up however you want. Um, Just like running different hydration packs, there's so many different kinds, but on the bike, you can set up uh, pouches on your bike to carry different products. I mean, your jersey, your kit can stow away products. You can set up water right between your bars, on the back of your bars, underneath. There's so many different ways that you can set it up, but the bike provides you with so much opportunity for nutrition. Let's talk about hydration for a minute. I think it was, oh, in one of the books I've read about uh, endurance performance, it may have been, well, I can't even remember right now, but I do remember there's an anecdote about a top world-class triathlete, right? I think she goes to Kona. This, this story is probably 10 or 15 years old. Goes to Kona, gets dehydrated on the bike, blacks out and crashes um, because of dehydration. Mm-hmm. Like we're talking, we're not just talking about performance. We're not just talking about like, oh, you'll feel better. We're talking about literally safety, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are going to keep you safe. Hydration, obviously, and I think anybody who works in the endurance space, right? We know that we're going to feel the effects of dehydration far more early on than we're probably going to feel the effects of being uh, underfueled. How, how can an athlete understand their hydration needs over such a long event? Yeah, this is, I will be honest with you, fuel, very important, yes, but dehydration is the number one cause of a lot of the GI issues, DNFs that I see people experiencing. Um, And especially on the bike, just a little tidbit here, if you're transitioning from a short course to a long course, I know you might not need to practice the grabs of your bottle on a short course because there you might not be on the bike long enough for those dehydration issues to set in. But if you're not practicing grabs, meaning grabbing your water bottle, hydrating on the bike because you're feeling unsteady, you feel like you might fall, that's going to be a big problem once you get into these long courses because you're on the bike a lot longer, depending. It could be 
you know, anywhere from three hours up to, you know, six, seven hours, that's going to really cause an issue for hydration, dehydration. Now, as far as how hydration changes, generally speaking, on the bike, you are going to lose a little bit less fluid than you would on the run, but it's not often a big change. So keeping up with that hydration is, is imperative there. Um, I really am a big fan of having a lot of bottles set up on the bike and accepting the fact that if you don't want to have all of your hydration set up on the bike, you're going to have to stop and you're going to have to refill. And that is okay. Think about it in the con in, in the uh, way of would you rather risk dehydration and have your time cut back because you had to slow down because of cramping or GI issues there? Or would you rather take the 30 seconds, I don't know, 60 seconds, whatever it is to stop and refill your bottle so there's not an issue? How often do you do sweat rate testing with the athletes that you work with? It, this will do, so I, with all of my athletes, I will do general basic like sweat loss testing. So this will be like a pre and a post weight, take into consideration how much someone has consumed during, and then kind of come up with an average roundabout um, fluid replacement strategy. And we'll do this over a course of, you know, through different seasons, of course, because sweat rates are going to be higher in warmer months. So I do this almost always with all of my endurance athletes. The time where we might utilize some actual more intensive testing, meaning we look at electrolyte losses, is when I'm noticing that there is a lot of cramping going on, a lot of GI issues, and that we need to refine the amounts of electrolytes that and fluids that are being lost, because that would be a, a much bigger issue. You know, electrolytes and so uh, electrolytes and fluids have a role together where water isn't just hydrating enough. We really need those electrolytes to pull the fluids into the cells and keep them hydrated. So sometimes, always I'll do hydration testing, but sometimes more intensive um, if there's other issues happening. I understand that this is going to be a very broad number, but generally speaking, what is the most common loss rate, sweat rate, that you see kind of like, if you're like, yeah, I would say, you know, most of my runners are probably between this and this and like average conditions. So if we're talking about, I'm gonna kind of talk about it from a fluid standpoint. So from average conditions for a fluid loss, what I most often see is somewhere between 14 to about 24 ounces of fluid lost per hour. I would say that's most common. And we generally aim to replace about 70 to 80% of those fluids lost. Now, sodium would be a little bit different. It is all over the map as far as sodium losses go. Yeah, sodium is bonkers. I mean, yeah. look at the spread on the, like, the scatter plots, just like, blah. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> it's all over. Um, and I, I, the reason I ask that is because I think so often we are experiencing GI distress, you know, on the bike or in the run, we attribute it to, oh, I've just taken in too much. I had too much water. I had too much fuel, but that it, it might, might be dehydration. It's kind of the first place to look. I, in my experience, most endurance athletes have absolutely no idea how much sweat, how much their fluid they're losing per hour. No, no clue. Yeah, you're you're 100% right. And every time I do a, a presentation with um, athletes, I recently did a, a presentation to a track camp, and then um, not too long ago, a hockey camp. And I always bring up the stats of how much average 
cups of fluid are lost per hour during exercise, which can be anywhere from four to 12, and jaws just drop. Like thinking of that, a glass of water, that's a lot, right? When we think of it in the context of things, fill up four glasses of water and look at it. That's just the low end. <laughs> I can, I would imagine that hockey players have very high sweat loss rates. <laughs> very, very much higher with all that heavy gear for sure. <laughs> Yeah. Even though they're on the ice. Yeah. There's a lot of sweating. And anybody who's been around a hockey player has been like, oh yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a lot of sweat. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously, so it sounds like if somebody, I mean, obviously for any endurance athlete, but definitely, especially for going to triathlon, right? These multi-hour events where there is see, so many opportunities to get sidetracked. It sounds like some baseline testing might be helpful going in, right? So you can start off kind of being like, all right, I'm not, I'm not guessing. I'm making an educated guess about what my needs might be. Yeah, I I totally agree. And I think that's really useful. Again, I know that to look at some of those like initial baseline numbers, we have to be okay with weighing ourselves. Right. And if you are not, it doesn't mean, oh, all is lost. Like I'll never understand how much fluid to replace. We can go off general recommendations and then tweak based how, uh, based on how you feel. But if you are comfortable with numbers, we can use that to gauge fluid loss and then therefore a fluid replacement strategy. Um, I know obviously the primary fuel source that we're talking about here is carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Is there a role for protein or fat in these multi-hour events? Absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when we see, when we look at times around that four hour point in endurance event, that would be an appropriate time where you could consider bringing in a bit of protein and or a bit of fat. Now I say a bit because when we are eating these things, our body has to work a bit harder to digest them as opposed to carbohydrates. So we don't want to overload, but they can be an effective strategy because at this point, our body can start to utilize protein as an energy source. And the strategy in preventing our body and using protein as an energy source, of course, would be to eat enough carbs in the first place. But once we get to that four hour point, we might be tapping into a little bit of that energy source with protein. So bringing in very small amounts, I mean, I'm talking like four or five grams, of course, is going to be individualized, but small amounts with protein and or fat can be helpful and breaking it up little bits over time Oftentimes it might be, there's a lot of um, different drinks out there, like electrolyte drinks or sports drinks that might have a little bit of a protein mixture in them. And even some, I know, gel products out there that do the same thing. So it sounds like, so I'm hearing a lot of stuff about the kind of the four hour mark. That kind of seems to be, so broadly speaking, you know, when I talk about fueling, I say, you know, technically anything 90 minutes or longer of continuous a continuous session is a long in in the running world. It's a long run, right? Physiologically, it becomes something that is going to be long enough where you do need to start fueling it because you're going to tap, like you said, tap out, go through your uh, endogenous glycogen stores, and then it kind of feels like four hours is that next big barrier beyond which your nutrition needs kind of change again. A mm-hmm. um, little bit of fat, possibly a little bit of protein. When do the recommendations for carbohydrates, when do they then also increase, right? If we're in that 60 to 90, when are we looking more at 90? When might we be going past 90? Because there is some research looking at 90 to 120 grams per hour in some ultra endurance events. And 
most triathlons definitely qualify as that. Yeah, absolutely. I would certainly consider increasing and working beyond that 90 when we're talking about being on the course longer than six, seven hours. Um, you know, some people- So may, full Ironmans. Yes. So full, full, full Ironmans. Yeah. <laughs> full Ironmans. Absolutely. And honestly- it's not going to it's not going to be harmful. It's only going to probably help you if you were to experiment in maybe a half Ironman distance with that too. But again, if you're currently not doing anything or we're only doing 30, the advice isn't to, oh, I have to be at 100 now. It's a slow progression. So maybe for one year, you work on getting to that 60 to 90 range. And then that next season, you work or you spend some of your off season working on training your digestive system and practicing with different fuel sources, different types of sugars to have your stomach tolerate that and be comfortable with reaching those higher goals. Tell me more about that. Different types of sugars. Yeah. How does that work? Yeah. So when we bring in different types of sugars, meaning there's glucose, there's fructose, there's lactose, there's dextrose, there's a lot of different types of sugar sources that you can use. But our body can only utilize or tolerate the absorption of so much glucose, for example, at once. So when we bring in multiple or different types of sugars, we can use different transporters in our body to be able to absorb more sugar at once, which is a super cool thing because if you have digestive issues, could it be because we're taking in maybe one too much of one fuel source, meaning too much glucose, and not combining different transporters so that we can absorb the glucose, but we also can absorb a different transporter and therefore tolerate it, get to those carb goals and enhance performance without the GI issues. Interesting. So there might be some situations where an athlete's experiencing GI issues, they're simply maxing out on their ability to digest and more than an amount of one for, let's say, dextrose, for example. They're like, I'm, I'm nailing 80 grams of dextrose per hour and they're getting GI distress. And I think the first thought is, oh, I'm just taking in too much and taking less. And what you're saying is you need to take in less of that one thing and, and add more of a different thing. Yep. Yep. So if you were, uh, one of my favorite examples is fructose for example. So I'll have people that maybe prefer not to have gels or, or chews or sports nutrition products for whatever reason. We won't, we won't get into the specifics of that. But when we are thinking like, okay, I am just going to eat honey the whole time, like the honey sticks for my fuel, or I'm going to have dates for my entire race. That's a lot of fructose at once. Our body does not have the ability to be able to handle large amounts of that over time. GI issues. But if we were to take that, and then combine it with a different fuel source. Maybe we're going to bring in a sports drink that also has maybe, you know, dextrose, glucose, different types of sugars. You're probably going to have an easier time tolerating that and able to maximize total carbs overall. I worked with an athlete uh, a while back who, when we were talking about fueling, she was like, I love the honey, not honey stinger gel. She's like, I love the honey sticks like you get at the yeah. store. Can I use those? And I was like, sure. But you know how much carbohydrates in each honey stick? And she was like, no, I don't. And I was like, I think it's like five grams. Like you're more than welcome to fuel your half marathon with those, but you're gonna need to carry like 25 of them. Yeah. <laughs> and you're gonna probably gonna be a sticky mess. <laughs> yes, it's so true, right? We have to think of like the the situation too of like what we're gonna carry and, and think about that. You know, if you're on your bike or you're on your run, do you have the capacity to carry these things that you plan for? I'll never forget wanting to experiment with some solid foods when I first got into triathlon. 
and I did, I think it was energy bites I tried to bring with me. And let me tell you, it was just crumbling all over the place. Like I barely got in half an energy bite into my mouth. And that's how I knew this isn't going to work. How important is variety though? Not like multiple sources of carbohydrates, but you know, anybody who's been out for a couple hours, just eating the same flavor of gel over and over and over again. Yeah. It gets old really fast. How important is variety in the nutritional planning process? Yes. So for me, I'll speak to my personal and then I'll speak to some things with clients. I know I personally need variety. Um, I will, the, once you reach like gel 20 on your run, something really starts to get to you and you're like, you put up this wall and then all of a sudden you're not eating anything. We don't want to be there. So if that is you, there's a lot of other options. I have clients that have no problem with eating the same thing the whole time, but having that variety from taste to texture can make a big difference for how you're going to continue to feel yourself for the rest of the race. So thinking about how you might set up your fueling strategy, like for your triathlon, if you kind of think about like, well, I'm going to be out there, let's say I'm going to be out there for seven hours, right? So long time, not the longest, right? Mm -hmm. But a pretty long time. And I understand kind of hourly, this is where I'm trying to get to, would you still break it up as like, this is my bike nutrition strategy and this is my run nutrition strategy? Like, how do you plan those out? The way I like to approach it is to kind of figure out like a baseline of where where they kind of see themselves ending and then kind of give some buffer as far as nutrition goes. But I take that strategy of fueling every 20 or 30 minutes, depending on what we have like worked on in practice. And I apply that to the whole race. So starting from transition one. So starting from T1, we start with our nutrition and hydration plan and we repeat that every usually 15 minutes for fluids, 30 minutes for fuel. And we use that strategy throughout the whole race. So whether you have started the, the run leg of the race, you're still applying that time goal from when you last did it on the bike. I'm just curious, logistically, as you go through T2, like obviously you can set your bike up and you can have all the stuff that you want on your bike, or you can kit it out with all the hydration and fuel that you could possibly cram onto it. As you go through T2, what, what do you then pick up that you can, like, can you pick up a running belt? Can you pick up a hydration vest? Like, what are your options for saying, okay, I'm going to keep feeling like a champ and hydrate like a champ. And this is what I'm now bringing with me on, you know, the very first step of the run, run section. Yeah. You can leave whatever you want to bring with you. So if it's, um, if it's a vest you want to carry on your run portion, if it's a belt with fuel stashed, you can bring whatever you want to. Maybe it's a handheld that you um, shove a couple of gels or uh, fueling products into. You can bring it however you want to. And just like running, I'd encourage you to check out the course because I do know plenty of people who don't like carrying. And we have to remember, okay, what is the distance of my run and what is on the course and, available, and is available to me? The problem I see is the bike, there's a lot that's available to you because you're really self-supported and there are some aid stations too, usually. But in the run, I see carbohydrates tend to drop a little bit just because there is less available. People don't love taking what's on the course, maybe because they haven't practiced with it or they don't want to stop. So we have to make sure that your fuel plan is still supportive of hitting those carb goals. I... 
I get like not, I don't like carrying things in my hands when I run, but my favorite race experiences have been when I was wearing a hydration vest. Yes. Like, Cause you have everything that you could pot. I have everything I need in all my pockets and I have my chapstick and I have like 19 gels and I have all my hydration. Like, it's just so nice to, to know that I have everything that I need. Like I get that you might not love the way it looks in race photos, but like, what if you PR'd, would you care what you looked like? It's so true. And I know I am amongst the right people here because I feel the same way. I used to not want to have a hydration vest. And I swear that hydration vest changed my life because I feel so supported when I have that thing on. I just have everything with me. I feel so good. I wanted to ask about liquid carbs. I think this is something that is less, less, I want to say prevalent in the running community simply because of logistically, like it's tough to carry the majority of your fuel fuel in a mixed liquid carb state. Mm -hmm. Um, and like you said, you know, jostling around on the run, liquid carbs, different types of fuel may not be tolerated as well when you're running, but how much more are you seeing people incorporate liquid carbs since there are so many great high carb options now? I have seen a, a lot of people utilize liquid carbs and so much so that I know some people that try to use liquid carb mixtures for the entirety of their race. There are some com companies, yeah, I know, there are some companies that will, that make products that supply X amount of carbohydrates for like per hour based on your needs for it to completely replace using like gels, chews and things like that. I will say that strategy can bode well for some people and not for other people. We have to keep in mind that when they're making these products, that is a lot to put into one thing. Um, and I know that's probably their, obviously their specialty, but we have to remember that we are changing the um, concentration of those drinks with carbohydrates. Every time you're putting in more electrolytes, carbohydrates into fluids, we're changing the concentration, the osmolality, how it's gonna sit in our stomach. So we have to be careful with that. It can be supportive, but I don't love that is the only option. That's, I mean, for people for whom that works for, that is like, I'm like, that's iron stomach territory. That's oh, like, yeah. wow. <laughs> oh yeah. I was just um, looking with a client and um, he really likes, we were looking at some of the Morton, I think Morton 320s and it has 79 grams of carbs in it. And he really enjoys that product. And you know, if it works and it has been working for him, that's great. But then we change, of course, um, that approach when we get to the run. It's not what we use the whole time. Yeah. And also, I mean, I, I personally do enjoy Martin products, but they don't have any sodium. I mean, that's not tr literally true. They have like trace amounts, but going to need to add some sodium to that. So you're already thinking about, well, it's not even, it's not even an all, all in one product because I need to add sodium. That's exactly what we were talking about. And I was like, all right, we're at about 200 milligrams of sodium right now. So what else are we, what else do you want to add? Right. That's always my question. It's like, we have this, but this isn't going to be enough. How are we going to tweak this? How often, I would say, how often do you see runners or runners, how often do you see a triathlete have the strategy, have the plan, and then I want to say uh, things that make it less likely that they'll be able to execute their plan as written? What are the pitfalls or things we need to consider what are the most common when you ask what happened? They're like, well, this happened. What are those things? Yeah. Yeah. I will say number one is 
if we haven't practiced it in entirety during your training. And what I mean by that is I know it's not going to be possible. You're not going to run and bike and swim the full distance of your race before you get to it. But do you have brick workouts and brick workouts are, you know, a bike and then a run workout? Do you have brick workouts? Do you have those longer workouts that you are applying these nutrition strategies to? So if they haven't practiced it, yes, there's the whole concept of training your stomach, training your body to handle it. But that's also the muscle memory of this is when I do this. This is what I do every 15 minutes. This is what I do every 30 minutes. This is how I grab my water bottle. This is how I grab my nutrition out of the back. So all of these things, it's the technique and it's the how do I fuel and hydrate my body for the sport. That's never a great experience for a lot of people, depending on where you are swimming. Sometimes the waters, they're, they're, they're open waters for a reason and we get a mouthful of water and that can upset our stomach and potentially have you know other consequences down the road depending on the uh, cleanliness of the water. But that can really throw things off for your plan if you get a mouthful of water and digestively, it's not sitting well with you. Ew. Yeah, I think anybody who's had a, a mouth of lake water or salt water. Yes. Yeah, throws everything yes. off. Are, is there anything you can do? Like, should we pack some Tums in our kit? Like, I know it, it's really, it really is hard. And I kind of, you know, cringe when I say that it's because, you know, in those times you have to do what you can, you have to do what you can and you have to do your best in trying to keep up with a hydration and nutrition plan, but also noting that you're probably going to have a limit where it's going to be difficult. So being flexible is the other important thing. Okay, maybe my plan for um, 90 grams of carbs an hour today is not gonna be the plan. So can I maybe tweak and go for 60? Maybe on the course there's gonna be some pretzels. Does that sound a little bit better to me than taking this gel right now? So kind of making some adjustments and trying to be quick on your feet for what you can tolerate and just try to keep up with your fluids and your um, fuel as you go throughout that race. How often do you see athletes finish an event feeling like total garbage, unfortunately, and they kind of do a rundown, you know, sometimes like we all do, right? Like, oh, I brought my hydration vest with me and I thought that I was hydrating, but then I get home and it's only half mm -hmm. empty, right? And I should have drank the whole mm -hmm. thing while I was out there or, you know, counting my empty gel wrappers and like, oh, I didn't take enough gels. How did this happen? Um, are there situations where kind of the race nerves or race, you know, vibes kind of take over and that uh, an athlete might like just legitimately just like forget or just like I needed three steps, but I only took one, you know, that kind of stuff can add up. It really, really can. And that has happened. And I think of, you know, if we even go back to, you know, pitfalls, but again, you, you can't predict what's going to happen race day. But I, I think of a time that a client this past year had a race where the headwinds and the, the, the weather in general was not great. So the headwinds on the bike made it really difficult and quite dangerous for her to actually grab her fuel during. So we missed, she missed a lot of that opportunity on the bike because of course, safety, right? Safety first, of course, always. But then yes, we have to try to, to work on keeping that fueling plan consistent after, but I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It's gonna be hard if you've been out there for three, four, six, seven, eight hours on the bike without having enough fuel. It, it's gonna bleed into how you feel on the run and how you're gonna feel days after. Yeah, because the part we haven't even talked about is the nutrition in in training, but in in your event, 
improves your ability to recover from what you're doing as well. Uh, there's like some very clear research about this. Oh yeah, Ab- absolutely. And you know, when we're making a fuel plan, it's not just like, all right, you are going to hit Elizabeth, you're going to hit 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour. And this is how you're going to do it. We talk about the days for leading up, of course, the carbohydrate load, but then we talk about what happens after the race. And it's it, part of your recovery strategy should be, what have I brought to the race with me? If I know that I finished these races and my appetite is trashed, I'm sorry, that's not a good enough excuse not to eat. So what do we do? We talk about, can we bring a recovery drink with us? Can we bring, can you have your friend, partner, whoever it is, bring a chocolate milk or can you leave it in the car? What can you do to bring in some nutrition for recovery if it's not going to be the foods that are provided at the end of the race? And then we need to be consistent with those hard training plates throughout the rest of the day and the next couple days for proper recovery. I want to ask you about the data that we have access to in this day and age. And I know that triathletes in particular tend to be exceptionally in the mo- in general, tend to be relatively data driven in terms of their training. Um, because obviously it's so hard to, um, you know, find equivalencies in your different training sessions, right? Like how do you, what's 20 miles on a bike versus what is that in a run? Right. So there's a lot of like metrics and data and power and, and heart rate and like all this stuff, but there's also a lot more access that we have as individual consumers to data like our heart rate variability or people who are choosing to wear things like continuous glucose mm-hmm. monitors that are giving us large volumes of data on a on a specific metric. As a dietitian, are you seeing an increased interest in people wearing or using continuous glucose monitors who are not diabetic? Oh yeah, a big, definitely a growing interest and using these products to assess like how they might, I say might, go about changing their their fueling strategy, 100%. What are their, I mean, I think was it like Kipchoge wore one for a little while and they are available now. And obviously I understand the appeal, right? Like, oh, I'll just, wear this for a couple weeks and I'll understand my body and I'll understand how I respond to different foods. Is that, is that helpful for the everyday recreational endurance? It is not, it is not helpful. And I know that data is cool and there are so many like cool products out there to give us like more information about things, but there's a point where I feel it also becomes Uh, I don't want to say harmful, but it interferes with how we choose to take care of ourselves or if we live by all of the data, it becomes an issue because we are ignoring what we need to do and how we feel. (laughs) We're doing these things based on, on data. So yeah, it's, I don't think it's great. Do you see people freaking out about specific readings? that you in your professional opinion are like, there's nothing wrong with that. You, this is yes, your mom. Exactly. And you know, the, the most recent example I have with a client who, um, was dealing is dealing with blood sugar issues. She was prescribed a CGM and we started looking at some of those, that data to help kind of make suggestions. And we didn't have any goals set around her, um, looking at her data while she was training, but it was something that she clued in on. And she said, Hey, you know, my, blood glucose spikes during this time when I'm training and it's dropping here. And so we definitely had to have the conversation about how your body is utilizing that. She got a little bit apprehensive about our fueling plan and that 60 to 90 grams of carbs per hour. So 
we started having that conversation of your muscles are going to use that those carbohydrates pretty rapidly. That's just a point in time measurement, right? So your muscles are gonna use that up quite easily to continue to feel your performance. So your body still needs those carbs. That's, that's not something we look at during training. It might be more useful outside to look at things for you, but not during. I would imagine I would want my blood sugar to be relatively high when I'm in the middle of a three hour bike ride. Like I, I want my body to have access, obviously not, you know, setting aside any actual health concerns or health conditions that might be present. But like, if I'm, I, for me, like, I know that I don't have any history of diabetes. I have no issues with blood sugar. Like I want energy, you know? So if I were to wear a continuous glucose monitor and it were to say like, oh, but your blood sugar was high at mile, you know, minute 90 of three hours. And I was like, yeah, but it's, isn't it supposed to be though? Yeah. Like, and obviously, you know, I'm not, I'm not a credential nutrition professional, but I do know that one of the things that people tend to be very concerned about is blood sugar and insulin and insulin spikes and how it relates to carbs and like fat and like chronic disease, right? It's just kind of this whole thing. It's not to say we shouldn't care about our health. We shouldn't subsist on entirely on, you know, packages of, of raw course. sugar, but there are times when your blood sugar should be a little bit higher. Yes. <laughs> and during exercise sounds like it's yeah, one of them. Just like you were saying earlier, when you were talking about dehydration and it being a matter of like life and death, like this is a, a, a important situation. If your blood glucose is low, that is a life, could be a potentially life-threatening situation. This is where you have the potential to lose focus, lose concentration, blackout, um, pass out. So imagine that being a risk when you're out there on a bike with a bunch of other people, not only for yourself, but the other participants in that race. Having your blood glucose low, um, not, not what we want. Is there anything that you are excited about that your athletes have done with their nutrition recently in their race? There's something that you're excited about, ways that they have combined different products or pushed the limits of what they were taking or fine-tuned what works for them? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think of clients that I've been working with over the years, and I think this is what brings me so much joy as I've had the opportunity to see them blossom with how they think about nutrition and apply nutrition, not only in their everyday, but even seeing them go from maybe running to taking on triathlon and then bumping up to that next subset of carb goals, you know, 60 to 90 per hour and seeing them thrive and feel really good. So, and that's so empowering for them, truthfully. So I, I really love seeing that, you know, years progress because there can be so much possibility there. It's so nice to have an athlete tell you, like they just finished a really hard or really long something and I can continue on with my day, right? Like, yeah, it does feel like I just ran 18 miles, but I can go to the grocery store. I can walk the dog, like I can make dinner. Like I just still feel like a normal human being. I'm not dead on yes, the Yes, yeah, I just had someone tell me that not too long ago. She was she was laughing. She's like, I didn't know that it was possible not to, to feel this way. And she was that classic example of, I do everything I'm quote unquote supposed to as far as the sports nutrition goals during, but I wasn't so much doing that outside of training and we worked on hydration and nutrition and she's like, wow, this was possible. This is great. And obviously, right. The whole point of this, I love this because you're like, whatever gets people in the door to understand this performance, let's, let's do the performance angle. Um, 
you know, you can't, you can BS your way through a half marathon without any fuel. I've done it, right? Don't love it. You can do it. You can probably get away with running a marathon underfueled. Uh, also, I've done it. Would not recommend. Hard two thumbs down. You can't do that in certainly not a half Ironman and absolutely not in an Ironman. I can't imagine the dangers of training in an underfueled or fasted state for that type of event, mm. much less trying to race. 8, 10, 12 hours without enough fuel. Uh, I think anybody who's hit the wall at any point in a training run or a race, a training ride or a race, like knows that feeling is the worst feeling in the whole world and will do anything to prevent it. Um, but it sounds like we still have a lot of educating left to do for some of our endurance athletes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Don't recommend that. I've been there myself with uh, underfueling through a full marathon and would not recommend not doing ever again. <laughs> It's a, it's a thing, and that's the thing is you kind of step back and marvel what your body can do. Right. And that's why I always like to say for, even for, you know, training volume or easy runs or like, just try the fuel and see how you feel. If that's what you can do under resourced, imagine what your body could do if you gave it everything it needed. Bingo. Bingo. Absolutely. I love that. I love to see when athletes, when runners are curious about going into a multi-sport discipline, but obviously the nutrition stuff becomes super important. So if somebody is curious, not just even about triathlon nutrition, but just endurance nutrition in general, and they want to work with you, tell us how they can do that. Absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at be fueled sports nutrition, and you can also head over to my website, www.befueledsn.com. We have a lot of great resources for endurance athletes from, you know, blog. I just started my own little podcast. And also we have memberships in one-on-one -on -one coaching. We have a lot of stuff available, guys. Love it. Love having options. Natalie, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Don't forget, you can always find and follow me on Instagram at Running Explained. And if you're looking for a coach or a training plan, check me out. Visit my website, runningexplained.co. That's runningexplained.co. See you next time. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition.